Today's episode of Dr. Heckle is sponsored by Sudio Headphones, S-U-D-I-O. They are a headphone company that make fashionable, high-quality Bluetooth headphones based out of Scandinavia. Go to sudio.com and use promo code HECKLE, H-E-C-K-L-E, at checkout to get 15% off some high-quality, fashionable Bluetooth headphones. TheOAMNetwork.com Power to the podcast. For a while, I had like an encyclopedic knowledge of the UK ska punk scene. Nice. <laughs> wow. Nice. <laughs> Which is pretty damn impressive, and that's a huge... It, there were a lot of bands, and right. a lot of bands with you. You know, you had to work out all the connections to one another, and ugh, a tangled web that a tang- that's Scott world, <laughs> a tangled web, and then you could trace it back to the American uh, punk There was a band called Link Eighty right. that uh, that you know was in that. So they were more late nineties, but they were influential to a lot of the like UK UK ska, ska. punk. Howard's Alias was probably like the one I knew the most about, but then there were all these bands like Cap Down, uh, let's think, Catch It Kebabs. <laughs> uh, it sounds like you maybe know them in alphabetical order, right. yeah, which is kind of frightening. Me. I can, yeah, but that's probably what I can go See, by. <laughs> Welcome to Dr. Heckle, the science communication podcast where a baby's involved. It's deeper than rap. We're talking character. Let me keep with the facts. You're hiding a child. Let that boy come home. Deadbeat motherfucker playing border control. Oh. On today's episode, saving the northern white rhino from extinction, a compound in green tea that binds to HDL, and why you should perel your head if you pierce it with a hawthorn thorn. Welcome to Dr. Heckle, the science communication show that is not hosted by a doctor and no one is heckling on. Now with me on the show today with a degree in political science from Louisiana State University, host of Memphis Musicology podcast, Ezra Wheeler. Welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. And with a couple of semesters in computer programming from Southwest Community College, from Memphis Improv and Sketch Collective, John Hancock. Hello, Welcome hello. to the show. Thank you so much. First of all, John, how are you doing? Uh, and tell us a little bit about Memphis Improv and Sketch Collective. Well, by all means, I'm doing pretty good today. It's, uh, it's hot as hell, as usual. Um, and improv. So I've been doing improv here in the city for a long time. I was in Freak Engine beforehand. It's been, wow, a really, really long time I've been doing improv here. So once Freak Engine kind of disbanded, a few of us got back together and decided we didn't want to stop performing yet, and that's where the Memphis Improv and Sketch Collective came in. So we've been doing shows there at Crosstown or Midtown Crossing ever since. It is, as far as I'm aware, the the main improv uh you know, society slash group in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you found uh, that you've managed to attract any, you know, younger members to try and bring in and like, you know, coach up or, uh, or anything? Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's sort of weird. All of us sort of have our different specialties. So we sort of learn from each other. I don't think I've actually felt like, well, I guess every once in a while I feel like I'm teaching just because I've got so much experience behind me. And it's mainly things like, hey, if your audience decides to all heckle you at the same time or throw something at you this is what you do it's not really how to improv it's more how to deal with like violent groups <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and what would you say so uh what would you say is your best uh, improv memory from memphis and your worst improv memory mm, um okay so probably pay- playing mousetraps falls in into my best memory and that's when uh You'll blindfold yourself and then set a bunch of live mouse traps out on the stage, and then play Marco Polo from one side to the other. So you've usually got one person. I don't think that's improv. I think that's, that's sore. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty great. Everyone's always like, "Oh, are those fake mouse traps?" I'm like, "No, they're not fake fake mouse traps. I've broken so many toes playing that game." Um, my <laughs> and your worst, my worst improv memory. Oh my god. Um, okay, I'm not going to say who the performer was with me, but we did a benefit show for Hearts of Gold, which is a pit bull rescue here. And I told everyone, I try not to censor people, you know, before we go out and do the show. And I told this one specific person, I was like, hey, you know, be cool with the references that you make. They didn't even think about it. So they go out, we start the show, there's all these people around, they're all like, hey, pro dog, pro pit bull. 
and immediately it's a Michael Vick scene. And I was like, <laughs> this is over. <laughs> this is already over. Like two or three people just walked out the door at that point. Like, That's great. We're losing money for charity. Thanks right. so much. Oh man, that is that is fantastic. Now, Ezra? Yes. Host of the Memphis Musicology podcast on this very network, the Correct. OAM network. Uh, tell us a little bit about how your podcast does not involve any dog brutality. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, at least. Right. So I'm uh, I'm the program manager at the Rock and Soul Museum. So it's a program through the museum. And essentially, we find, I find a story of interest. It could be somewhat biographical. We've done one about several people, Rufus Thomas or Sam and Dave. Uh, sometimes it's about a topic, say protest songs has been an episode, whatever's tickling my fancy. And then um, we tie in interviews probably every other episode and then end with a great song from Memphis. So try to hit the, you know, always something based in the past, but do try to bring in the contemporary as much as possible. So that's the gist of it. Great. And that's found, uh, funded by the foundation, right? That's the um, Arts Memphis and the Genium Foundation gave us money for that so sweet yeah if anyone's willing to give us money for this to this thing <laughs> so please let me know uh so what what have you again best and worst uh experiences doing that so far hopefully you haven't had too many bad experiences no on no it. it's uh there have i'm not a natural interviewer and there's been times where you're interviewing somebody who's not a natural interviewee and that's a bit painful but just uh you work with it you get a the guys behind the desk over here, you know, they can make it sound like you had a fruitful conversation. <laughs> but the best is same kind of token, but meeting great people and then just learning. Um, I found that you reward yourself by going down these internet wormholes, which is very rare, whether that turns into a fruitful exercise. But it's kind of how I do it. I start with something I know about and then you find a name you're not familiar with. It's popped up a few times. Google them. Oh, they used to work at this label I've never heard of. Let's check out the... So yeah, that's uh, that's been great. Just kind of tumbling my way through things. So it does almost seem. So you do, th- you know, through the museum almost. Uh, so it's it's almost like a scholarly pursuit. Effectively, you are, uh, you know, and musicology. You're effectively saying this is the, you know, the study of Memphis music. Correct. In, in a way, that's and- right. And and I do try to. It's supposed to be fun. I mean, it's entertaining. It's a podcast. I try to let my personality come through a little bit. But yeah, we're at the Smithsonian Museum, and I want to be a resource if somebody does want to use the podcast to be as factually correct as like so yeah it's a finding that balance is kind of the hard part but yeah and uh and i don't i don't mean to have uh you know embarrassed you by calling you a scholar but uh the reason i do it is you know uh there are a number of ologies obviously there's a huge number of different fields of study and so i just uh type down a few different ones uh to see if you could Guess what areas of study Let's exist. <laughs> uh, so first of all, there's a very famous one actually that is usually used uh, when talking about different ologies, and that's campanology. Do you know what that is? Campanology. I don't actually. Campanology. Nope. nope. Campan. The study of ringing bells. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. What's the etymology on that? What's camp? Camp. Ooh, I should have. Is this a K or a C? <laughs> this is a C. C. Campanology. Campanology. Ringing bells. Yeah, no. Nah. Right. I never would have gotten it. <laughs> no. Nah. Uh, it's not ringing any bells for me. I, right. I can't tell you. The, hey, <laughs> there he is. <laughs> can't tell you the etymo- uh, etymology. Uh, vexillology is another one. You will, you will not get this, I'm sure. Vexillology. Vexillology. Vexil. Huh. No, what is yeah. it? It's the study of flags. Wow. I need to study my etymology. I know. More. Yeah. I know. Uh, dendochronology. This one has a bit more of a Latin base. Dendochronology. Dendo. Dendochronology. So chronology. Right, we got that. Right, right. I'm, with, I'm, with, time. I'm with you right. there. <laughs> Dendo. 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 Or dendro, sorry. Den- oh, see, now that's now different. I threw you off. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know what dendo is, but dendrochronology. What Obvious. The study of the, the past. It is the study of time 
right as <laughs> as seen through uh trees or tree rings specifically oh that's kind of neat to know yeah yeah, that's a good uh mansplaining phrase (laughs) 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 you know to determine atmospheric conditions at a certain time people are still you know there's still even university uh university of memphis researchers who use tree rings specifically to look at temperature events Mm. uh and everything i saw one of them give give a little talk on that uh Dendro, though, makes sense if you think about your dendrites in neurons, these, like, you know, uh, outreaching branches or whatever from forming the different connections. Right. Presumably, there's, uh, there's a similar etymology there. Of actually, the, obviously, your, uh, the trees came first, and then... Everything else grew around it, basically. And then when they saw that these neural projections looked kind of like tree limbs almost, they were like, mm-hmm. oh, dendrites. Interesting. And finally, uh, this is one for both of you, pogonology. Study of pogs. Yeah, I mean, that's easy. Slammers. Slammers and whatever the other Flaming pogs. A-balls. It's the yeah. study of beards. Oh! And you're both sporting oh. mighty yeah. fine... Whiskers, well, pogs, and we're pog enthusiasts, right? We have so much in common, right? Beards, <laughs> you beards pogs. pogs this weekend. <laughs> Both wearing music shirts. That's oh, true. That's wow. true. White stripes and Bowie for mm. the listeners at home. So, do you feel a little bit more uh, educated on the study of ologies? Absolutely. Are you going oh, yeah. to switch? For, if there was a if there was a field of study that is not your own currently, that you would switch to given you know given your chance as a young man to uh sprout off and study for the rest of your life is there anything you can think of that comes to mind um, probably thanatology although i don't know how you make like a, a career in studying death but it's pretty fascinating to me no that's not a threat it's just it sounds like a threat and we're going to leave it there for <laughs> section one <laughs> Before we get back to business, we're going to talk a little bit about our first sponsor here at Dr. Heckle. That is Studio Headphones, S-U-D-I-O. They provide high-quality, fashionable Bluetooth headphones. In the studio here, we use the Regents. They are their premium on-ear model, impeccable clarity in the instrumental tones, and well-balanced sound. With 24 hours of active battery life and 20 days of standby life, they'll be the perfect headphones for you to use at home or on the go. Myself, I use the in-ear version. I do a lot of running. I use the Tray, which is the newest model. For those with an active lifestyle, it keeps that impeccable clarity in those instrumental tones. The Trays have nine hours of battery life and ten days of standby life. And again, the perfect companion on the home or the go. And it's sweat-proof as well, because I get disgusting. Right now, they're offering a fantastic offer. If you use the code HECKLE at checkout on studio.com, you'll get 15% off your order. That's Heckle, H-E-C-K-L-E. Go now to studio.com. The OAMnetwork.com. All original podcasts released weekly in Memphis, Tennessee. Welcome back to our next section of Dr. Heckle, where we move on to our news item of the week. Today's article comes from an English publication called The Daily Express, and the title of the article is Heart Attack Warning... This breakfast drink could slash your risk of deadly heart disease. You want to know what the breakfast drink is? Of course. Green tea, apparently. Okay. What do you guys think about that? Green tea for a lack of heart attack? Well, not a big green tea fan, which makes sense because I'm not a fan of anything with any health benefits. Right. So I can (laughs) certainly believe that that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's chock full of antioxidants, right? Oh, we can come on to that. Okay. We can come on to that in a bit. Yeah, so uh, this article says green tea could lower the amount of bad cholesterol in your blood vessels and therefore reduce your heart disease risk, according to Japanese scientists. A separate study claimed that people who drink more green tea have a 28% lower risk of coronary artery disease than those who drink the least amount of green tea. Mm. The least amount presumably being zero. <laughs> zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's Japanese... If you go to yeah, they're drinking green tea in Japan. <laughs> right. I have to question the whole premise of this off the bat. Yeah. I'm Once you say Japanese, they eat 
Green yep. tea ice cream. I'm with you. I'm thinking maybe this is like to circumvent some Trump tariff issue to try and convince everyone <laughs> to buy more you green need to keep tea. Keep buying this green That's tea. Right. And and uh, the final the final little piece I'll give you uh, first of all is while it's best not to drink more than five cups of green tea every day because it could cause kidney stones, it may be beneficial to add a couple of mugs to your daily diet according to Harvard Medical School. Hmm. There's harder things to ask. Yeah. You know. I mean, you can put all kinds of things in green tea, like vodka. Yeah, did they mention? <laughs> does it talk about that? <laughs> right. Next what article. What kind of cocktails can we, can we make up? Green tea, That's yeah. Right. That's what I'm down for. <laughs> so, so the study that uh, a study that was released recently uh, that talked about the effects of a compound called ep- epigallocatechin gallate (EGCG). Uh, this was released in the Journal of Biological Chemistry. And it showed that this EGCG compound could bind to a protein called ApoA1. Now, that ApoA1 is a major component of HDL cholesterol, as we call it. People often think of it as the good cholesterol, right? Uh, but it has negative effects and can cause, you know, buildup of plaques. Uh, so this piece is causing some stir, as mentioned in the Guardian uh, and other news outlets. Uh, but the first thing I'm going to bring your attention to is this was not done in Japan, right? This was done at the University of Lancaster and the University of Leeds. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they don't drink tea there. I mean, they could be Japanese scientists (laughs) that that were living in university, uh, living in Leeds and Lancaster, although their names do do not suggest that they are Japanese. Japanese. (laughs) Um, What are their names? Uh, David Middleton is one of the the names. Right. I could have guessed that. Right. (laughs) And... uh, let me uh, let me bring up the uh, let me bring up the study so I can give you give them their names. David Middleton was the anchor author, and David Townsend, a pair of Davids, yep. right. did this research. Oh, and there's another uh, middle author called David Rochester. So, <laughs> wow, there were three Davids, <laughs> three Davids, uh, three Davids: a Jeffrey, <laughs> a Katie, an O'Leary, and a Sheena. Yeah, I'm I'm not really picking up the serious Japanese representation. No, no. Yeah, well, neither were they Harvard Medical School uh, researchers either. Wow. Uh, which is the other, you know, the other quote mentioned in the article. Um, now, second of all, the study itself was not, uh, you know, anything to do with the study of people. This was a right. physical chemistry study. So basically, they took green tea, they heated it up, in a microwave, they basically boil it, which is, you know, just when you heat the green tea, that releases the compounds right. you know, mm-hmm. from, uh, the from the tea, from, yeah, etc. Uh, so they put it in the microwave, mm-hmm. got these compounds to be released, and then exposed it to, you know, this protein. And they, they did some cell work where they put it on dishes of, you know, dishes of cells to show no toxic effects. Uh, and, but they, the specific thing that they were showing was it was binding and making this, uh, protein more soluble so it was you know in theory preventing the formation of the fibrils right. in a controlled you know setting there is no data from humans to suggest that this right. is happening uh indeed uh a professor at aston university stated that there is no uh it's obviously not the same as drinking green tea which right we can, which we can are tell we're we supposed to inject it directly into our veins is that is that what it's telling us to just inject green tea because now I'm interested. Yeah. Can <laughs> <laughs> that tea? I'm on board now. <laughs> well, yeah, because we don't know how much. It's never been studied how much of this compound enters the blood once you drink it. Right. It's not just that, you know, you ingest the compound. Oh, it's going to enter right, your blood. Think about, about sweet, sweet, sweet corn, man. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. it, it, that's crazy. So uh, there's no evidence that you will ever from drinking green tea get in a high enough concentration of that uh, compound into your blood to cause any uh, meaningful effect right. on that uh, on plaque formation. Now, there's associative studies. You know, people that drink green tea, it's been shown in previous associative studies that they have a lower incidence of certain disease, you know, uh, diseases, ischemic diseases, so coronary artery disease. Maybe there's a correlation there. It's not a huge correlation, that's it seems to exist but again correlation not causation right uh you know it could be that people drinking green tea in the morning might have other healthy 
Right. Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Habits. I mean, you know, if they've chosen to drink green tea, they're, life, they're obviously care about their life choices. They're not just running out and grabbing whatever coffee's closest. Especially to if, like especially, me. yeah. If a study was done in a Western nation right. where it was just green tea drinkers, it is only a certain type of person that is very, like, in tune with sure. wanting to keep their body very healthy that is likely to be drinking green tea all the time. Uh, another professor at the University of Glasgow said, uh, you know, we've been here before with novel food agents and drinks, which are sp- uh, said to lessen health risks. But if you think about the real advances that have been made to date with talking about those specific, you know, oh, this is a superfood, this right. is, you know, this drink is going to save your life. There's been very little advance. So people should obviously not be rushing to drink green tea. And that's not even what the the uh, authors of the study suggested at all. Mm-hmm. They were just saying that we've seen this, uh, we've seen this binding, we've seen this thing happen, and it opens up the uh, scope for further study to be done. Right. Uh, now to move on to the uh, superfoods or the antioxidants point that you brought right. out. Uh, the article also said that <laughs> that this compound could help protect against the damaging effect of free radicals. Right. Okay, so as an, as an antioxidant. Now, this is something that there are, men, there are a huge number of things that even to this day say they have antioxidant properties. Right. And, you know, what they'll do to, to, sh- to show that it's an, an, you know, it's an antioxidant is they'll put it on some cells at this really high concentration and say, look, it reduced the number of free radicals. Now, interventionist studies have been done for years and years and years with antioxidants and antioxidant-rich foods. And uh, even by 2006, a meta-analysis had pointed out that no benefit had ever been established. Really? And this is over, like, they would, it was a Cochrane uh, database review, which is basically, the it's almost like the gold standard, like when you're doing meta-analysis, you're... You're taking every study that's been done before, so ones that may have said positive, ones that may have said negative, and you pull them all together, you, uh, and you do this huge, giant analysis on all of the data. So 200,000 people with uh, interventionist studies with antioxidants. No benefit seen. Right. And it's pretty much in the uh, literate scientific community, anyone claiming that an antioxidant is going to have a beneficial effect is laughed out of court it's a marketing scheme yeah it's I mean, effective yeah so that cranberry juice it's not having any good real, to know <laughs> real laughing now, well i mean free radical sounds frightening enough i mean that's like you know something you just throw out there to try and get the public scared of it it makes sense see free radical sounds like something i want to be a part of yeah yeah no, but when you're there's a group calling themselves the, but buy, here, yeah, here in America, leather you jackets wanna, you want to fight the free radicals you're oh, not that's right the man wants to That's fight right. the, the free man radicals. Wants to fight the free radicals. The antioxidant man. <laughs> so, uh, in other articles that I looked at, I saw some, you know, kind of dubious, you know, a few dubious things, but none of them were as weird as this Daily Express article that was talking about. So they were all released at the same time. All right. of these articles. There's mm-hmm. basically the process is, you know, uh, once an article is released, then press is allowed on it. And so all of the other articles that were talking about it, they may have said a few wobbly things, but they were talking about the article in question. This, this piece by the Daily Express seems to have no correlation to what actually <laughs> happened. Exactly. Is, is adding additional claims like antioxidant uh, you know, benefits and also uh, benefits to Alzheimer's disease uh, that, have, that were not like, put forward in the article itself. Right. Uh, and so it it's just left this kind of bizarre, completely false piece of writing <laughs> that is barely literate in the first place. That's what happens when you let free radicals write yeah, for your yeah, publication. I mean, they need to spray them down with antioxidants. And you know what we're going to do to those free radicals from the Daily Express? <laughs> we're going to dub them fake news. <laughs> oh. Let Ohm help you get the word out on your service, product, or endeavor. Email info at theoamnetwork.com. Welcome back to our final section where I take a journal article, read it out to our guests, and see what information they can store in their noggins. Now, uh, today's article, the first author is Tate Tunstall. The anchor author is Cynthia Steiner. This is from the journal Genome Research. 
and was conducted at the San Diego Zoo for Conservation Research. The title of the article is called Evaluating Recovery Potential of the Northern White Rhinoceros from Cryopreserved Somatic Cells. What can you tell us from that title alone? Well, I've seen Jurassic Park. How about yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, they're about to make some super rhinos. Well, it's, it's rhino DNA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, I think I know this. I know how this story yeah, goes. Exactly. <laughs> no, I would imagine... Uh, well, yeah, we're, we're saving uh, DNA material from the, the these final rhinos in hopes that we can someday... Yeah, make some other rhinos. Bring them back when we ultimately bring them out. That's, they're cytosol. Does is, that mean they're like fertilized eggs at that point? Or uh, not, not fertilized eggs in this case. So uh, bring them back. They're not quite gone yet, but the last, <laughs> the last male right. is gone. The last male wow. is dead. There are only two white, uh, northern white rhinoceroses left, and they're both in captivity and too old right. to uh, be naturally fertile. Are they both female? They're both female. The last male died in March of this year. Wow. So uh, the, the huh. northern white rhinoceros, which is, there are two species of white rhinoceros, the northern and the southern, uh, very similar to one another. But uh, the northern is effectively no more uh, based on poaching uh, is the main, the main source sure. and the mm-hmm. fact that it was very difficult to breed them in captivity. The last uh, northern white rhinoceros born in captivity was born in the year 2000. It was very, wow. very difficult for them to breed. Uh, and even though the habitat was still intact, the poaching was just so extreme that it you know, has driven them not just to the brink of extinction, but driven them to extinction. Right. On top of being cruel, isn't there something fucking inherently really stupid about what are you, what are you going to do now? Yeah, exactly. You just ruined it. Like, I needed more of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. You got, that was your business plan. I'm a, right. Well, I'm a, yeah, I'm a ivory poacher. Oh, fuck. Right. The oh, one fuck. That was next, <laughs> oh, man. It was the one that was behind the guy that shot the last right. one. It was like, fucking for real. <laughs> for real. <laughs> Guess I'll get a nine to five. Oh. Yeah, so rhinoceroses are particularly affected, you know, as a group on the brink of extinction. It's thought that 22% of mammals are deemed to be at risk of extinction. But of the five uh, extant species uh, listed as critically endangered, uh, sorry, Three of the five extant species are listed as critically endangered. That's Javan, Sumatran, and black rhinoceroses. Uh, one is listed as vulnerable, and the white rhinoceros is viewed as near-threatened because there's so many of the southern white rhinoceros, mm-hmm. uh, where there's uh, around 20,000 of those left. Um, but that is rem- a remarkable amount because at the beginning of the 20th century of the southern white rhino- rhinoceros, there was about 20 to 50 right estimated left and then through a breeding program and you know a careful conservation and protection from poachers uh, the southern white rhinoceros which resides uh, mainly in south africa has actually been brought back to a normal level population of around twenty thousand. nice and the northern rhinos are african as well because you just you just named the indonesian so yeah yeah so so the nor- the northern white rhinoceros is also african but it's found uh, around Chad, uh, Sudan, the Congo region. So they're actually okay. geographically isolated, sure. which is which is actually uh, an important thing that they that gets pointed out in this article. So they're geographically isolated, uh, which is why it's such a big deal that that northern white rhino is gone. Uh, so this study was basically, uh, its starting point was this northern white rhino, there is no potential for normal fertile you know normal fertility to take place right uh which makes you think that it would go extinct but there are new technologies that have emerged that could in theory uh bring back or you know prevent a period of extinction by uh causing a birth of a northern white rhino before the last female you know goes goes extinct right so, so there is no period of extinction uh, so a couple of those techniques, uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer, which is basically where you take uh, an egg cell, you take out the nucleus 
from that egg, and then you take uh, the nucleus of a somatic cell, so that's any other cell apart from the reproductive uh, cells, and you put that nucleus inside that egg and then allow it to... You, you can culture it and then put it into a surrogate mother and uh, allow growth of the embryo and then birth. So think, think Dolly the sheep, right. that, kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, now, uh, procedures have gotten advanced enough with that where it sh- that should, in theory, be possible. And uh, the southern white rhino might be what you would use as a surrogate mother. Mm. Now, maybe, you, maybe they would try to use the uh, northern white rhinos that are not deemed uh, normally fertile, but it may be that the embryo wouldn't take in those. Right. Right. So uh, you would, that's one method you can use. The other is you can make gametes, uh, so these, you know, y- your two halves uh, via stem cell ma- manipulation and then fertilize an egg that way. So you, you can induce the stem cells and differentiate them down pathways to, you know, to make, uh, you can make an egg cell, a sperm cell of a rhino, of this particular rhino, put them together, get your new rhino. What so, are they thinking is more promising? Do we know? I would say that somatic cell nuclear transfer is far more promising. That that would have been my guess, yeah. knowing absolutely nothing. Yeah. Uh, so with the stem cell manipulation, if you think about doing it in people doing it in humans, or do, people who have probably got it down in mice, right. uh, with doing it in humans, there's a lot of research because of the potential therapeutic a- applications, but it's still very, very difficult to do. With something like a, uh, a rhino, uh, there are not many people working on that, so you don't have the same tools. That's mm-hmm. fair. You don't right. have, like, you can't just add, uh, you know, rhino uh, four factors uh, very easily. Now, four factors are something to bring, it, bring a cell, an adult cell back to a stem cell state. Uh, the, the guy, uh, Yamanaka, won the Nobel Prize for in 2006. You can do that very easily in human. Everyone's researching it. You've got, you know, your Ox4, your, I think it's Ox4, Sox2, KLF4, uh, one other one, um, you can throw them in, take your, take one of your cells back to this kind of stem cell state, and then send it down another differentiation pathway. With a rhinoceros, you don't have those tools. It's going to be right. very difficult. But is the basic. Gotcha. Is why I think that the other method will work much better. Now, what this uh, group has that at San Diego Zoo that others do not is fibroblast lines taken from northern white rhinos before they went extinct so they've got cells from these different rhinos Mm -hmm. Uh, so that lends the possibility of a greater gene pool than even if you just took uh, you know if you just took uh, DNA from that last rhino and from those two uh, surviving rhinos so what they uh, what they were doing is they wanted to look at the genome diversity of these rhinos so they took uh, nine uh, northern white rhino genomes, effectively. They took uh, the cells from, from nine of these uh, distinct samples and four southern white rhinos and then did this massive deep genome sequencing, comparing it back to the DNA of an already sequenced southern white rhino. Okay. And so what they found is actually quite a lot of genetic diversity. So uh, they found 1.7 million SNPs polymorphic in both subspecies so that's basically in a, in each subspecies you've got uh 1.7 my uh 7 million dna bases that can be different uh, between the between the rhinos uh and 1.869 were fixed in both and then you've got um Variants that are unique to so you've got variation between the different rhinos of the same species and the variation between the two subspecies and you know there's a greater variation between the two subspecies. There's mm-hmm. you know uh, I think it was 2.5 and 4 million uh, SMP variants were unique in the southern and northern uh, respectively. So they genetically confirmed that these were distinct subspecies. They basically took all this data, this huge data set. And uh, did a phylogenetic tree analysis, which is basically like how related is this one to this one? How related is this one to this one? Mm-hmm. And then they got two distinct populations. You know, the northerns 
are more related to each other. The Southerns are more related to each other. And there's no Northern and Southern that is more related to one another than right. any of the two groups. So that's good. And similar results were, the, were seen when their mitochondrial genome was looked at. So uh, mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, genomes uh, between species, it's basically got its own, its own genome within that, you know, within those little little things that you have thousands of within each cell. Uh, Those stay very constant. They're passed down the maternal line. Uh, But obviously there is room for me. There is some room for mutation. And again, more similarity seen in the mitochondrial genome between the Northern, between the Southern than between each other. Right. So this kind of, this leads them to believe that, you know, that there is a decent amount of genetic diversity. Uh, and actually, that's considerably higher than the number of other species, and even within a, a similar, um, so even within the northern white rhino, they had a higher amount of genetic diversity within their population than other endangered species like the Tasmanian de- devil. So huh. the uh, rhinos that they looked at more genetically distinct than some other endangered species, mm-hmm. which is actually a good thing. Uh, so they did some more analysis of the sequence data, a very complex analysis uh, where you basically make inferences on the, the local density of uh, elements that are, that are different uh, to each other on different alleles, different um, your, your two copies of your chromosomes. And they did that across the, gen- uh, the genome. And from that and from analyzing all the different rhinos, they worked out that uh, around 80,000 years ago, and this is a complete estimate because you're looking at a very low number of genomes. But around 80,000 years ago was when the northern and white uh, and southern white rhino uh, split from one another. So they right. were common, an- common ancestor, became distinct around 80,000 years ago. Which is pretty short, right? Yeah. yeah. That, that's, that's Evolutionarily re- speaking or no? It's, so it's, it's a, it is a short time. But it's also long enough for them to become distinct That's subspecies. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing they can tell from this analysis, which is kind of crazy, uh, is that they can work out the, the population sizes, an estimate of, across that time. And uh, they said that the northern white rhino reached its peak population size of, of around 15,000, around 40,000 years ago. Mm. Uh, and then, obviously, the decline... you know. It, there was a fluctuation, but the decline has really been in the modern era right. Right. when poaching has become a, a problem. Uh, now, another thing they wanted to look at was inbreeding rates. And so, again, they do, they do this thing where they analyze ho- runs of homozygosity. So they look at million-based pest stretches of the genome. How much is the same across the different, your two different chromosomes across your alleles? And they found slightly lower rates of the, the same runs in the northern versus the southern rhino. So again, that, uh, that suggests less inbreeding in the right. northern rhino, more inbreeding in the southern rhino. And why do you think that makes sense? Well, I mean, it's less breeding in general, and as the numbers fall, you don't really have relatives to have sex with anymore. Uh, not, qu- not quite. Uh, <laughs> not quite. What the actual, uh, if you think about it, so they didn't provide an explanation, but what mm-hmm. makes sense is the southern white rhino was reduced to a population of around 20 to 50 uh, at the beginning of the century. Now it's around you know, 20,000. So all of those 20,000 have to have oh, originated from that 20 to 50 in the uh, early 20th century. So it makes sense that you know, whilst it was only, a, you know, Four percent in the southern rhino of this runs of similarity versus two to three percent. It was a significant enough change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, based on that uh, variability score and these low, uh, you know, low runs of homozygosity, mm-hmm. this team decided that there were four northern rhino samples particularly that were really suitable for use in an attempt to rescue the species. So they basically said, here are four of these nine samples that we think are the best suited to try and bring them back because you know they're they're diverse they're you know they're fitting these parameters that will give you an expansive enough gene pool to not have the problems of you know you bring back uh you bring back the the rhino and and they all i don't know they all get diabetes or they (laughs) right right uh 
One other thing they did uh, was they looked at genes, and they didn't do much work on this. They just kind of like hinted at it. They looked for genes that were under selection at the time the samples were taken and found a number relating to olfaction. So basically a number of like uh, sensory you know, smelling genes uh, that seemed to be under a selection pressure during the time that they were harvested. Maybe, maybe they were being forced to new lands and you know, forced to... So there were different things that, that would be beneficial to sense. No one, no one really knows. They really just kind of threw that in there at the end. Right. But uh, it's, it's interesting That's that... That's very interesting. It's interesting that the process of evolution is, uh, you know, is going on in... Uh, was going on in rhinos until, until they all got killed, obviously. Well, yeah. And that they could pinpoint it. And they could pick out these, you know, from their analysis, partic- is, particular genes that seem to be under selection. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, the way that they would probably go about this, like I said, is use the southern white rhino as a surrogate mother. It is genetically distinct, but it is similar enough uh, that you know it's it's fairly it's like a almost like a chimp and a gorilla in how uh, similar they are. They think that they should be able to use it as a surrogate mother, right? Uh, to, to bring it back. So that is the study. Uh, I want to know from you guys what you took in from it, uh, what you think is outrageous, and uh, what you can tell back to me right now. Oh, my God. Well, I think all of us had sort of been hearing that the rhino was on its way back, you know, like the even the white rhino, and that's kind of bullshit because you've got the northern versus the southern white rhino. Nobody talks about that division. That's right. And that's really unfair. <laughs> it seems, I'm gl- happy to hear that it seems like, uh, well, of course, when you have two members of your species left, you're not doing well, but that they are in a genetically favorable position to perhaps. Well, that seemed like a takeaway. Is that right? I think. I we think, would rather the northern rhinos be going extinct than the southern rhinos because no, no, they I, are ready for a. Uh, I, I think you know? a glimmer of hope is what we should uh, take away from, from yeah. this. It, it it must be nice for it, for the white rhinos left to think okay, there's some guys at San Diego University right. and they care. They care. They yeah. no one else cared. <laughs> well, I'm really glad somebody had the forethought to be like, well, let's get as many samples of the northern one as we can. Right. You know, because I mean, I could understand having one sample somewhere, but the fact that somebody was already having the forethought of. We should get as many of them as we possibly can to get samples. It's like from. we do with the seed farm. We should, yeah. We should do more of that. Yeah, I I totally agree. Uh, it's, probably, it's almost crazy to me that they only had nine, uh, or they only had nine that they could use, right? Because they they, Cause said, they they said they collected it over the last thirty years. So that's like crazy. one every one every three years, not even. Wow. I mean, can you imagine the the concept applied to us as we see each other now? It's like over a thirty year period, only being able to get. Samples from nine people, <laughs> right? You know, right. You know, rebuild them all. These nine people, I know a lot. And then of, of the people. nine, maybe these four will work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Yikes. I know a lot of people. I could not pick out those nine people. It's I, like, you if know. you started human, restarted humanity with the twenty people in this lobby, yeah. I mean, we're fucked. Exactly, we're, we are just fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Poor rhinos. Yeah. So much for that glimmer. I Never hope. mind. <laughs> I'm going to offer to be a rhino surrogate, though, because I mean. That's <laughs> Soon as I heard, it, I was like, "That's my calling. That's, That's me." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's the study of a uh, rhino? Uh, what would it be? Stop. Rhino fertility. I'm going to search study of rhinos. <laughs> uh, a study of rhinos ology. It's coming up, yeah. coming up with nothing doesn't exist. Well. That's what. Well, there, there it is. Yeah, there it goes. <laughs> now you've made it. Yeah. We're and studying I'm, this sound of bells, but nobody gave a fuck about the rhinos. <laughs> it's great. And you're right about how quickly they have to do it. That's a strange thought. I mean, you know, the idea of bringing something back from complete extin- extension, blah, extinction gives you all these moral questions. It doesn't give me moral questions. I don't give a fuck. But. You know, it, it gives some people moral questions like, oh, if it's completely gone, it wasn't meant to be here. So what do you do with that last northern rhino? Is it like weekend at Bernie's until you figure it out? <laughs> like, oh, rhino's great. Rhino's He's great. 
Just a huge marionette of it. <laughs> There's a guy inside the rhino. <laughs> I'm going to give you the chance to name the study of white rhinos right now. Uh, their Latin name is Ceratotherium simum. Ceratotherium. That's not pronounced correctly, but Ceratotherium sim- simum. Mm-hmm. Rhinoology it is. Yes. Right. <laughs> uh, well, that brings us to the end of our regulated uh, play. But obviously, I've been spouting off scientific words and word play to you for the past half an hour. But I always give a chance for you to throw something back at me that I might not have heard. So I asked each of you to bring a fact for me today. And... Uh, Ezra, I'm going to start with you. Do you have a fact for me? Sure. Well, this is one, I think it actually, I heard it on a podcast years ago, and it's it's been one of my favorites, and so I looked it back up and found a little research, and it was about, well, we'll start with the, it's about the color blue, and about how we've discovered that the concept of blue really is a relatively new human construct, and for, even if you go back to the, see if you look at the, the Odyssey, the word blue never appears he uh homer refers to the sea as being red and in the bible similarly there is no concept of blue and they've gone through the course of human history and the first time blue was ever mentioned uh was the romans and they're saying even today there are plenty of these uh less tuned in kind of you know, you you find tribes in Africa who still have, they have all the colors we have, but no concept of blue, which makes sense that we really see it in the sea and the sky. But if you ask them, they will say that sky is white or, oh, wow. and it's this interesting thing also where they found tribes who had no concept of blue and you would show them, here's six green squares, here's six squares, five are green, one's blue, and they were not able to differentiate yet. They had several words for green, and if you did a slightly different shade of green, they were able to call it. So it was both something about having a word for a color then brings it into existence. They didn't have a word. And then, whereas we don't have a lot of words for green, they could do a similar study with Westerners. Here's six green squares, but one slightly different. Right. And where this tribe from, you know, East Africa, it was easy for them. And your Westerners, it was a blind guess. Yeah. uh, so so I, I heard the thing about the, the tribes before, but mm-hmm. I hadn't heard uh, that the, you know, the Greeks didn't have a concept for blue or that it didn't exist in, you know, I guess, history slash prehistory. And actually, I, I messed it up. I think I said the Romans. It was the Egyptians, and they said they first showed up, and um, they were the first society where blue showed up because they had the capacity to make blue dyes. Uh, and that capacity to be able to create blue then gave them the word, but it wasn't what they called the sky or right. apparently there are very few, I guess if you think about it, it's not that surprising. Blue occurs. You've got blueberries and well, blue jays, blue yeah. jays, but they say most flowers that are blue were um, man-made. Mod- they were modified. And so well, it was until they found indigo or something like that before they could actually dye anything. Right. It was sort of like, you know, same with purple, really. It's not a very naturally occurring exactly. color. But yeah, I thought this, there's something fascinating about the idea of once you name something, then it becomes tangible. Right. It's not Without different. the name, you you literally do not perceive it. Once you have a word for it, there it is. There you go, sense. rhinoology. Rhinoology. Now, rhinoology. It's, now it's named. It has become <laughs> that's real. A, it's now a field. <laughs> so that's my fun fact great and uh, and john anything to add to that well anything any different fact don't tell me well, the sure. same fact obviously um <laughs> let's see something weird so we grow a lot of poisonous plants around the house and um one of the things that we have in in the back I have a very large hawthorn that i continuously run my head into <laughs> and uh one of the things i thought was interesting about the hawthorn is that People consider the thorns to be poisonous, but in fact, it's, there's no toxin inside of them. They just build bacteria. So they're just, for some reason, those thorns are a hotbed of bacteria. So when I pierced my head with one a couple of weeks ago, and I was mortified, and I was like, okay, this is another way. I'm, I'm just going to die. In <laughs> fact, it, really, the risk of infection was the big problem. But they are super, I mean, so much so that you can take them off and use them as darts to you know, blow at people or stick them with, stab them with, and then they 
become infected with all this crazy material. So hawthorn thorns carry huge varieties of massive amounts of bacteria. And just a little wipe will save you. Yep, exactly. Just put some Purell on it. <laughs> What's a hawthorn look like? I've got a great image of you putting Purell on your head, just squeezing <laughs> it straight right. from the bottle. <laughs> it's funny. So they uh, start off as bushes, and you, you can really tell because the thorns get, I mean, you're talking about about two inches long. I think I, like I think I have it in my head. Yeah. I have one that's tree-sized in the back because we do strange things. So I have a, a, a tree-sized hawthorn. But yeah, the, they're... I mean, the thorns are insanely sharp. They're very, very strong. Mm-hmm. So you can use them for any manner of things. Just watch out for that bacteria. There you go. All right. Well, thank you very much. Both very interesting facts. And thank you for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Uh, before we go, of course, you get the chance to plug what you got going on. So, uh, Ezra, first of all, what have you got going on? I've got a couple things. Uh, one, of course, we'll start with the podcast. It's Memphis Musicology. You're listening to a podcast right now, so I assume you know how to find those. Uh, like it, subscribe it, listen to it. Also, we're doing Memphis Music tri- Trivia, music trivia rather at Crosstown Brewery every Wednesday. It'd be fun to come out if you do feel like you, if, you know, you've got that knowledge. And if you don't, listen to the podcast and then show up. It'll certainly help. Um, that'll handle it. Perfect. And John? Uh, let's see. The Memphis Improv and Sketch Collective. The show is the last Friday of every month at uh, Midtown Crossing Grill. Also, anyone that wants to submit writing, our, my online literary magazine that I'm a co-editor with is at downdirtyword.com. And we do poetry, fiction, nonfiction. So feel free to submit if you've got anything you feel uh, might fit in their, our genres. We're kind of weird. Excellent. Well, once again, it's been a pleasure having you both here to talk science today. So thank you, and good night. Dr. Heckle is an OAM Network production recorded at the Cross on Concourse in Memphis, Tennessee. Your host was Mark Brimble. Guests were Ezra Wheeler and John Hancock. The show was produced by Mark Brimble, Gil Worth, and Hunter Sandlin. Special thanks to John Miller and Carla Worth. If you have any questions, comments, or like to get in touch about appearing on the show, or topics you'd like us to cover, email us at drhecklepod at gmail.com.